So let tune in to Black Cyber, the number one, the number one podcast to jumpstart, sustain, and catapult African Americans' career in a cybersecurity. Black Cyber, securing our place in the industry. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Black Cyber Podcast. I'm your host, George McPherson. My guest today is Malcolm Blow. Malcolm is a technical leader and operator in cybersecurity. Currently, he plans and conducts defensive cyber engagements for the government as a team lead and analyst. In addition to that, he's the CISO at a rapidly growing tech startup where he's designing and growing their cybersecurity program from the ground up. He is well-versed in strategic training excuse me, strategic planning, red teaming, incident response, and threat hunting. In this episode, he will discuss what day-to-day in these aspects of cyber look like and how someone new to the industry can best prepare for long for a long and successful career. Malcolm, thank you for joining the show and uh, welcome to the Black Cyber Podcast. Appreciate it. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you uh, for making time to come on the show with us. I know you're busy and uh, definitely appreciate this. Um, Let's get into the Black Cyber Origins, Malcolm. Where are you originally from and who was Malcolm Blow outside of the um, outside of your career? Okay, um, so I'm from the D.C. area. That's what I claim. Uh, Before that, I grew up in eastern North Carolina. I was an army brat growing up, so I moved all over, but I spent the longest in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, it's a 252 area code, very rural area. That's where I first got my exposure to cyber, surprisingly enough. And as far as outside of my career, uh, I really like, so I'm an inverted extrovert or an extroverted yes. introvert, as I like to call it, which <clears throat> means I do like hanging out with my friends um, in social arenas. Uh, I also love my alone time. So it's really, a healthy mix where I find myself enjoying life the most. I love group trips abroad. Those are by far like, if I'm planning a trip, it's going to be a group trip in some uh, foreign country. Oh yeah. And uh, like, I'll do stuff like try to street food and make sure I have some, uh, <laughs> some stomach medication with me just in case it doesn't end well, but it's, it's worth it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Definitely. as far as other things I like to do is um, I'm a big part of seeing the culture improve in general. And my part in terms of, sharing cyber education and awareness is I like also introducing financial literacy. Um, uh, For example, there's a fire movement, financial independence, retire early, and just exposing people to different principles. Like you you don't have to work for 20, 30 years and live off money you saved along the way in form of retirement only. You can do things now to set yourself up for a future and work for, I don't know, 10, 15 years and and then do what you want, live the life you always wanted for even longer. So outside of cyber, that is where I like to focus on, in addition to spending my weekends doing nothing when I can. <laughs> but those days are rare now, which is surprising in the pandemic. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Thank you for that, uh, Malcolm. Um, who is the one person that if we take out of your success equation, your trajectory does not look as steep or as accomplished? Is there anybody you can think of that kind of had a big part in your success? 
Uh, absolutely. So I'm going to cheat because this is easy for me. I have a twin brother and we always had the same interests in college. We had the same majors, including grad school. And so that constant competition from essentially birth all the way up to the present day is what I attribute my success to. Um, starting off in college, we were both engineers on the engineering side, um, started off in electrical engineering and then moved on to computer engineering and then cyber uh, is where we finished off. But along the way, it was a constant uh, competition. Who could get the best GPA? Who could get the best internships? Who could get the best job offer? Who can get the best scholarships? And so that constant competition is what I attribute my success to today. Even now, I'm competitive with myself mostly, but it is definitely him. Wow. Wow. That's that's interesting, too, because I'm just, I'm just picturing that, you know, how they say your biggest competition is yourself look in the mirror you kind of <laughs> but to have a twin where you're competing you're looking like he looks just like me we're competing kind of similar personalities but it's like i gotta outdo him though <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i mean oh, it was definitely yeah. constructive competition and we helped each oh, other yeah. along the way but it's just that that push like oh wait he got this scholarship for this amount all right let me go ahead and spend this weekend oh yeah find that stuff so that's good motivation <laughs> right <laughs> it's been great um, so, Malcolm, what does a day in the life of a threat hunter look like? Oh, wow. All right. Uh, so before we jump into that, I do want to provide a little bit of background as to okay. what threat hunting is. Go ahead. And yep. also what it is not. Um, so threat hunting, uh, I'm going to combine a lot of the uh, public definitions out there and then give my own spin on it. Gotcha. So threat hunting is a hypothesis-driven uh proactive and iterative approach to searching for malicious behavior on a network or in an enterprise environment. Um, I think that's the textbook definition. Uh, my definition uh, to more entry-level professionals is that on the threat hunt timeline, as you, let's say, incorporate the cyber kill chain on the offensive side, um, or in terms of defense, if you have uh, that moment in time called boom. So boom is the moment when malicious activity first takes place on the network. So before boom, to the left of boom, you have all these uh, defensive mechanisms. You have IDS, you have your firewall, you have all these prevention steps. But as soon as boom happens, then you're doing defensive. It's all reactive um, in my <clears> opinion. <throat> That's when you have incident response, you have uh, your source solutions or automated ways to triage it. You have um, AV trying to quarantine it. But threat hunting comes in because traditionally the dwell time of a successful threat actor on a network is for months. Um, with the evolution of cybersecurity and threat hunting, that dwell time is smaller now. But still, even though the definition of threat hunting is uh, proactive, it's still to the right of boom, but it's proactive in the sense that you're identifying threats and reacting to them before traditional security solutions. Normally, it's like months later, you see, oh, wow, this is hundreds of gigabytes of exfil. That's not good. Instead of waiting for that, then threat actors, uh, I'm sorry, threat hunters come in and say, hey, we see this activity going on that doesn't look uh, legitimate. Let's investigate it. And if it is malicious, we'll cut it off before they get to their end goal. So in the cyber kill chain, um, you have your reconnaissance, you have your uh, well, path of and also active reconnaissance. You have open source intelligence, um, developing your, um, 
your malware thing to go with delivery. But once you hit that ex, uh, delivery stage and you actually get to exploit where you're um, executing on a system, on a remote system, then you're in the uh, that boom stage and trying to stop them between that moment of exploit versus while they're trying to spread out, establish persistence, uh, establish C2, that's where you're ideally trying to find them. And then of course, if they get domain admin or take your um, ntds.dits uh, out, then you're, you're, you're owned at that point. So gotcha. before that happens is, is when threat hunting takes place. But to answer gotcha. your question, what a day in the life of a threat hunter look like? Um, I hate saying this, but it depends. It depends on the maturity <laughs> of the threat platform. If you're a, a SOC analyst and you're trying to incorporate threat hunting methodologies, then it looks different than if you have a, a mature threat platform and you are um, just tailoring automations and adding in new threat intelligence feeds. Um, so I'm gonna answer on both ends of that spectrum. Um, I'm going to reference David Bianco. He's a security researcher. He has something called the um, Hunt Maturity Matrix or Hunt Maturity Model. And okay. what that does is it defines the different levels of a, of a threat platform. In the beginning, when you're just now developing a threat hunting platform, it's mostly using other solutions out there. You're using things people have written and ingesting them in, let's say, Splunk or the Elk stack, and you're, you're running it and tearing it to see how it best fits your environment. And then on the high end, you have an established platform. You have high fidelity rules that don't give you that many prox positives, as well as you, you've automated the stuff you've vetted over the years. You've vetted tailored these rules right here. They're amazing. And then from there, you're adding new stuff to it based on uh, threat intelligence feeds that apply to your network, your enterprise, uh, your employer. Um, so on the front end, when you first have that new immature platform that you want to grow out, it's a lot of reading through and understanding rules other people have written and then seeing if they fit in your environment. If you have this high fidelity rule that's uh, triggering on a certain event ID, but you're not even collecting that from the endpoints, then it's useless. So it's trying to tailor it uh, as you go. But on the more mature side, which is where my team sits, it's a lot of tailoring rules you have and making sure that, uh, that they are, as you suspect, it's a lot of testing and it's a lot of automation so that if you do get an alert, you know, hey, let's drop everything and investigate around this and see how, um, how it's interacting with the environment and cut it off. And then we'll get back to ingesting threat intelligence feeds or you have a constant person sitting at a screen, more of a SOC mindset, a constant person saying, okay, these are high fidelity alerts. If these trigger, it's just as good as the AV. And that's what a day in the life looks like. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you for that. Um, how can cybersecurity prospects mold themselves into an ideal candidate for um, a different career? And for those that don't know, can you elaborate the uh, acronym for that as well? I'm sorry, the acronym for what? Differ, for the differ. Okay, yeah, yeah not a problem. Uh, differ is uh, digital forensics and incident response. It's that, uh, it's that key forensics piece of, of cybersecurity. And as far as making yourself an ideal candidate, uh, exposure and experience. I understand that it's really hard to break into the industry and that it's really hard to find a true entry-level position 
um, I've heard horror stories where uh, requirements for entry-level position are, let's say, uh, CISSP, and to get that certification, you're supposed to have years of experience already. Yeah. Uh, uh, they want you to have uh, years of experience in this one technology that recently came out, and you've been in school the whole time, so you haven't had time to train on it. So definitely exposure and practice on your own. Um, gotcha. Yep. I know people are in school or switching career fields, and it's hard, but you have to set up. Uh, I'm gonna recommend Security Onion, uh, which is a, a dis Linux distro with built-in tools. They have the Elk stack. They have other tools that you can play with, and just learning how they work. That is the best thing that a candidate can do. Um, I'm sure you're gonna ask later about uh, what it's like for me as a recruiter, or I'm a technical speaker at recruiting events. Uh, with my agency at times. And I have a lot of conversations with people asking me, hey, uh, I'm new to the field. I am in school for it, but how can I make myself stand out? And it's definitely being able to talk intelligently about uh, things you've learned and experienced. And you can do that by writing about what you've learned, uh, create a blog about uh, different things you do on your own or with your school. I know a lot of schools with cyber programs have a lab setting, a sandbox lab where you can throw exploits that's what they're designed for. But on the defensive side, you should be able to identify those exploits because most of the stuff in a training environment is commercial off-the-shelf tools that um, AV might not flag on it, but a threat hunting platform or SIEM should be able to alert on it pretty easily. So being able to talk about that uh, intelligently is what I will say absolutely makes you stand out. And also playing with the different tools out there. Um, you have Ghidra for uh, reverse engineering, Ida, Ollie Debugger. You don't have to be a SME at any one of those, but being able to pull out useful information from uh, portable executable, uh, by far standard. Um, being able to get a PCAP and pull out useful data, um, if it's encrypted, uh, finding the key and implementing it so you can unlock uh, that PCAP data and pull out the different protocols and uh, the payload part of those packets. Uh, what else is there? Knowing how Windows works on a different side. If you have event logs, but you don't know what the different IDs mean or how to look them up real quick and figure out which ones are useful to you to tracking this uh, threat actor campaign, then it's really hard to teach that. Schools don't really teach it. And if an employer has to start you off from scratch and teach you, okay, this is how Windows work. Uh, for persistence, registry files, these different uh, keys mean this, then it's really hard to convince an employee to invest in you if you say you're passionate about cybersecurity or differ, but you can't speak about the basics. So I'm going to say exposure on your own and practice with these different tool sets. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good tips. Very good tips. Um what are some, so, and you kind of touched on some of them, what are some other uh, good key soft skills that are needed? Okay, so for soft skills, um, I'm going to say communication by far. You need to be able to communicate in cybersecurity at a high level and a very low level. Um, so, for example, stakeholders are the key decision makers in the enterprise. These are like the executives, the, the product owner. They're the ones who say, what does or doesn't happen. And you should be able to convince them. And they're not technical people in general. So if you can convince them, hey, this is very important. We should focus on this. And to them, it's a business decision. Um, either this is an expense that's worth it, 
or it's not. And usually for them, it's cut and dry. If it takes, um, let's say a million dollars to implement this security solution, but if we don't, and we just have to deal with it on the back end after it's breached and it costs less than a million dollars, then that's cut and dry for them, don't do it. But if you can convince them, hey, your reputation is worth this much of the product and we need to prevent that on the front end or the fact that once you get a threat actor into the network and they're able to spread to these other business parts, then you really start to get them to thinking, oh, maybe network segmentation is, is good or implementing LAPS, uh, which is a Windows tool for changing the uh, local admin passwords on boxes so that the same admin password doesn't get you domain admin as it does on the local system. So uh, those soft skills are important, being able to bring down the technical risks and um, exploits and defensive measures and being able to talk intelligently to a non-technical stakeholder to convince them. Um, for that, there's a book I really like. It's called uh, Narrative and Numbers. It's designed so that people who present it to boards and executives to, to get their point across. And the my opinion of the takeaway of the story is that the story itself is more important than your statistics or figures or charts or visualizations. Of course, executives and higher ups, they like pretty pictures, but more important than that is your delivery of the story behind it. Convince them, reference certain data points, but overall your storytelling skills are what gets that um, those actionable items on the back end. And then other key skills, technical writing is good. A, on both offensive and defensive sides, uh, that report is by far the biggest deliverable. So you have your executive summary up front. That's what the stakeholders care about. With that, you need to be able at a low level describe, I'm sorry, at a high level describe, this is what happened. This is how it happened. Um, here are some quick recommendations. And then get really low level after that through the rest of the report and say, all right, here are some specifics. This is how you can emulate this or repeat it. Um, another researcher or red teamer or security analyst should be able to redo those steps or get a very detailed picture based on that. So the person who writes it needs to have both those high level skills and low level communication skills, whether it's in words or in writing. Um, that's the biggest thing. Also customer service is a big part. Um, even if it's not part of your job, uh, it can only help you is what I like to tell people. Uh, for example, when I first joined my team, that was my first time doing differ full time and uh, how the government worked, uh, that part of the Department of Defense worked was brand new to me. And one thing I really started doing, which helped the team and myself was just answering the phone. We have a group line and of course, nobody likes answering it, <laughs> but I took it upon myself to just be the first one to answer it. After two rings, I normally have the phone in my hand already. My team loved that because they could focus on what they were good at. And I liked it because after a few months of doing that, I learned so much more about how the government works, how my team fits in the big picture. I learned how to find data points so I could answer the questions on the phone. I learned how to use these EDR solutions uh, myself to get people quick answers. And so that's just customer service in general. And also what I've seen is uh, both on the offensive and defensive side is people like using your expertise and tool sets to help them. So for example, with uh, let's say CIS top 20, which is uh, recommendations for anybody with the cyber exposure to defend themselves. Um, asset identification is a key part of that. And so I've seen red teams as well as uh, threat ethic teams be asked to either do things like vulnerability scans 
outside of the usual uh, whole house or to do um, asset identification and say, and give a report of these are the different systems we see on the network. And so being able to do that, um, I'm pretty sure uh, experienced operator won't wanna do that. But if you do that on your own, you learn more about how that works and you'll establish connections across the uh, enterprise and help somebody out. And it's always better to help somebody out and be in a pocket uh, before you actually need them in an incident, you're establishing those network connections. So those are the soft skills that I'm going to name. Oh yeah, very good, uh, very good tips on that. <clears throat> so, and, and you don't have to provide a lot of questions, but let's say I'm getting ready for an interview for this type of position. Um, what what type of interview questions should I prepare myself for? Oh wow, okay. Um, so you normally have the traditional uh, technical questions. Um, what are auto runs? How does the registry work? Um, walk me through a a full attack, a full kill chain attack on the offensive side, the defensive side, depending on what kind of position it is. But I like to talk more about their their mindset and their passion because uh, my team usually report. Uh, I'm sorry, um, recruits straight out of school. So definitely straight out of high school or college. I'm sorry, college for the most part. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so I like to focus on um, how they think that tells me if they'll be able to learn on their own in addition to what we teach them, which is what I would want in a, in a colleague or a trainee. And so to do that, I'll ask questions like um, what tools have you worked with? Um, Have you ever worked in a production environment? Um, And this is also on the, offensive side, the defensive side. I'll try to be specific as far as which one goes where, but I want to know that you're passionate on your own and that you've done work because I've heard the excuse a lot. Um, I've been in school. We never covered that in school, but I want somebody who's passionate and research your stuff on their own. All right. So as I was saying, um, some other interview questions I'd like to ask are, tell me about a current cyber campaign or exploit that you're really following and, and why. And uh, I don't want to hear something like uh, zero log on, but they aren't able to tell me about how you would find that, which is very difficult, by the way. Uh, I want to hear details um, about why they pick certain campaigns. For example, for mine, it's, it's Golden Spy. Back over the summer in China, uh, there was a bank who required all of their customers to download a certain, um, a certain tool. And they said it was for tax purposes but uh, researchers later found that it was a back door with elevated privileges oh, wow. that called out okay. to a domain. And it was, it was funny because it became all over the news for about a week. And then by the end of that week, they had, through that exploit, uploaded an uninstall file to get rid of all the malware traces of it. And they took down the C2. And <laughs> it, it just it was just funny to me. But oh, yeah. actually analyzing that, and going through it is something I want to hear, uh, the passion and the enjoyment of hearing a candidate say, I like this campaign for this reason. Um, another question I'll ask is, tell me about your favorite security researcher and why. Uh, this is also on the offensive side as well. Um, I've learned more from listening to offensive podcasts and following blogs than I did going through um, pen testing with Kali Linux, uh, as far as tools, useful tools. Um, that being said, Kali Linux and Offset 
Labs are by far the best hands-on tools I've seen next to Hackerbox uh, for red teamers, but learning actual things you can use in a production environment, because you can't just fire off an in-map scan at full blast or do a vulnerability scan uh, at full blast without setting off crazy alerts and making the security team hate you. And you can't just pull stuff straight off of ExploitDB or GitHub and expect it to work in a production environment. It might, but it's not reliable. So you'd have to go low and slow, um, do targeted password spraying, things like that. And um, even common things like uh, using Procmon to, to dump uh, um, the hashes on a Windows system is getting caught. That, that stage where, you're, where you create the dump file and you try to pull it back to crack, that's getting caught more and more. So there's a tool now called uh, LSASI that uses another low bin. Uh, low bin is living off the land binary. Um, things like uh, uh, PowerShell is a low bin because it's built in and it's automatically whitelisted for the most part. But there's another one with the subcomponent called mini dump. And on the fly, you can fire LSASI and pull back the credits onto your remote system without having to transfer files. So it, it gets caught a whole lot less. So things like that, I wanna hear people talk about. I haven't worked in, a, in an enterprise environment or a production environment, but I do know these things because I, I keep up research and I test them on my own lab and environment. Um, I'd ask them what their home environment looks like. If it's purely uh, one VM that they're running, um, I'll have questions, but if they tell me they're using uh, uh, other tools, they, they're using Kali to throw exploits and Security Onion with the, their own elk stack to collect as a SIM, and they have a victim box that they use as well that's forwarding logs to that SIM, then I'll say, huh, all right, perfect. Yes, I would absolutely love to work with you. Uh, so that was a long answer. Some of the questions I'll ask. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's very good information. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the interview blueprint right there. Um, <laughs> far as some lessons you've learned, um, far as lessons learned when you started your career, is there anything you would have did differently? Um, yes, absolutely. I'll say the biggest thing I learned the hard way was that I was an elitist, uh, in terms of thinking that I knew I wanted to be a cyber operator early enough in my career. And so I was thinking if it's not uh, differ or it's not red teaming or pen testing, then it's beneath me. That being said, it was very shortly after I joined the workforce that I realized it was all those other skills I missed out on. Uh, my Python skills were, they weren't weak, but they were significantly lacking behind that of my colleagues. Gotcha. Because I was thinking, I've done development before. I didn't like it. I'll never do it again. <clears throat> but learning how to write a decent Python script quickly will save you on both ends. Um, learning how system admins work in the IT environment to operate, um, that has been a game changer for me. And I could have learned it so much earlier. So I thought IT was beneath me. I thought system admin work was beneath me, um, coding in general. But those are the skills you need in addition to uh, just being a regular threat hunter or red team operator. Yes. Um, um, another one I learned is once I realized that I really wanted to move on to actual cybersecurity leadership, I realized um, I thought compliance was beneath me as well. And because <laughs> I know there's true security and then you have compliance. And honestly, they're both equally as important. The business can't function without compliance, but 
true security is actually um, usually not as uh, important enough in terms of what it's doing to most, let's say board members or executives because they're looking at their bottom line. It's either in the red or in the black in terms of profitable or an expense. And compliance provides value because other vendors are gonna be looking for those compliance reports. And if you can't do business with them because you don't have it, then it quickly becomes a valuable item versus true security where you're trying to spend money on threat intelligence reports, but there isn't any immediate value you can assign to that. And um, those are the hardest two that I learned for the most part. Okay, okay. Um, and if you, you've talked about this a little bit, um, what is, what's probably your favorite security tool and why? So I haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, Sigma is my current favorite tool. Sigma? It's Sigma, yes. Gotcha. It's a it's available on GitHub. It's a it's a rule writing uh, framework for uh, threat hunters. You write the rules in YAML, uh, which is a language that stands for YAML, ain't markup language, but you write the rules in YAML. Hmm. It's, it's pretty much layman's, but you can convert it to anything you would need it to. You can convert it to a Splunk query. You can convert it to uh, a Kusto query, which is what uh, Azure Sentinel runs on. You can convert it to uh, Elastalert or Kibana if you're using the Elk stack and a bunch of other ones, Snort rules. And if what you need isn't up there, you can write your own uh, converter and implement it. But I really like that because in the threat hunting space, a lot of people are thinking, hey, me and my team made this rule. This is our this is our secret sauce, we're not gonna share it. But I really want to foster the community aspect where people are sharing rules. If there's a rule that's good enough, it should be shared. Everyone's goal is cybersecurity. And so if your only goal is, hey, I wanna create this and keep it for my enterprise only, then you're not really helping the community. But with Sigma, you can write rules in a general language and everyone can implement it on their platform. Gotcha, yep. Um, and that's a good point you bring up because I mean, we both know working in security is not an easy job. It's, I mean, it's not simple, it's complex. Um, and like you said, that, that selfish approach is, is not really going, it's not going to get us any type of advantages. Sharing to the community is what's going to make us stronger, uh, you know, far as sharing that information that could save your organization in the future because that organization used that information and kind of matured it and you, you shared it in, you know, as far as making the community stronger. So uh, definitely a good point on that. Absolutely. Um, are you are you able to elaborate on being a CISO at the uh, the tech startup? Uh, sure. Some details I can't give, but overall, um, that is my favorite position. Um, my dream job uh, down the road, uh, once we get the startup off the ground, is to be a BISO, which is similar to a traditional CISO, but more on the business development side of things. That's what I really enjoy. But not just being CISO, but CISO at a startup is the best of everything I've seen. I get my hands in everything from the B2B side, establishing strategic partnerships. I've been in conversations with venture capitalists and angel investors. Um, I get to work with the developers to make sure they're implementing uh, DevSecOps principles and still being able to hit their timelines in a uh, agile framework. Um, I get to work with the legal team, making sure we have uh, a plan in place 
for things like that as far as uh, compliance goes, making sure we have things for the future, uh, what we're doing with our security logs, how we're interacting with the public, our privacy statement. So all these things you've seen going through like CISSP training or uh, just learning in general about what cybersecurity leadership is, I actually get to do that uh, every day, uh, I should say every night in my weekends and it's been fun. I, I love every bit of it. Um, I get to use the tools uh, I want to, um, play with the new hotness as I call it, <laughs> for example, oh, yeah. with the pandemic, there's been an amazing amount of people running to get behind uh, zero trust and software defined perimeters. And having that from the beginning has been a, has been a blast. Um, I'm not gonna get to any of the actual ways we use it, but it's been fun actually getting to do it how I want to, how I best see fit for the program and making sure that it's scalable for the future. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I can't let the show go by. I see you wearing that shirt. I, I got to say something about it. How, how did you Absolutely. like going to uh, uh, North Carolina A&T? Uh, I love what was it. that experience it was, like for you? Uh, so I did go to the illustrious North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Got to take the whole thing out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but A&T was great. Um, it really gave me the opportunity to to figure out where I wanted to be. Um, so when I first started out, my dream job was working with drones for the military. Um, so when I first came in, I was an electrical engineer, but I'm attributing this 100% to A&T and its faculty and their connections. Um, luckily, I was able to get an internship every summer um, working with robotics and nice. then from there to work with uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration through our on-campus research endeavor that because they found me after my freshman year. And through them, I was able to actually work with NOAA headquarters by designing drone missions. Uh, back then was the big BP oil spill and I was designing drone missions uh, to figure out how they can best be applied to detect and monitor maritime oil spills. And then immediately following that, I was able to use those connections, which I did get through A&T to go work for NASA for a summer in California playing with their drones. Uh, wow. designing okay. components for it. And so I was able to do my dream job when I first started college through A&T's connections. And I will say it was then that I realized it wasn't my dream job anymore. Um, I don't know why it should have clicked to me before, but <laughs> working with drones because I was an aircraft enthusiast uh, was why I picked it. But, but sitting on the ground, sitting at the NASA ground station behind a pilot staring at a bunch of screens and monitors pulling back telemetry data from the aircraft, even though the drone is miles downrange, I realized all I have is these screens. Uh, I don't feel any attention to the aircraft. I can do this at home. That's when yeah. I realized, all right, yeah. I'm gonna follow my backup plan and do cyber because um, of course, uh, uh, Penelope Garcia on Criminal Minds, uh, Chloe O'Brien on 24 and Timothy McGee on NCIS are what I thought were uh, working in cyber was all about. You know, banging <laughs> on the keyboard real quick. Oh, yeah. Working through firewalls in a second. Yeah. And, uh, and you own a network. Yeah, that's all it that's takes is a couple <laughs> seconds. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but I did have some experience before that. And then through AT, it was actually pretty easy for me to switch over. Um, I first started with electrical engineering, I ended on computer engineering for undergrad. And then before I joined the workforce, uh, I was actually getting ready to. to uh, continue my education. I'm sorry, continue working full time. Because at the time I was working with the intelligence community as an intern and I had a few 
uh, chores under my belt and I was just going to work full time and work my way from engineering to cyber. But my school came to me and said, hey, you've been here for a while. We know you're a good student. Here's a full ride plus uh, 30K stipend every year just to get your master's wow. degree. Okay. And that'll so work. Said, huh? that was, <laughs> yep, that'll work. <laughs> Real quick. So yes, A&T was absolutely one of the best decisions I made. And I'm actually looking forward to helping to build the program in the future. I really want to come on uh, in more of an advisory capacity to help build their cyber program. Um, it was definitely a good program, but I feel like I can help it grow more. Um, when I left, my master's project was to help design a curriculum for their cyber defenders lab so that students could come in and say, hey, this is how we do these few attacks, um, these few defense mechanisms, and then later on bring it all together. Uh, for example, um, one of the exercises was this is how you do art poisoning. Another one was this is how you clone a website. Another one is this is how you do a redirect and then challenge them at the end of doing all those exercises to say, okay, I want you to, now this is in the sandbox environment. I want you to art poison this computer so that when they go to this website, it goes to your local hosted one that mimics uh, the social media website properly for the credentials. So when they enter it in, you get those credentials and it forwards them to the real website. So just putting all that together, uh, most schools don't have that. I see that when I do interviews now, uh, on both sides, my, both of my current employers, is that they're lacking that piece. They might know, oh, here's one attack. This is how you do network poisoning using uh, Responder. Uh, but they don't know, okay, once you get this, this is what you do next or what you can do next. And so providing that pivoting piece, it's one of my passions now in terms of uh, teaching people. Okay, on the offensive side, once you get this access, you can do this next. On the defensive side, if you get this, uh, IOC, you look at these uh, other uh, data fields next to see if you can find uh, enough data to build a picture of the attack and what happened and to scope and clear a network. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, okay, Malcolm, uh, the Black Cyber stage is yours. If people want to know more about Malcolm Blow, where can they go online to find information about you? Oh, wow. Uh, the easiest place is going to be LinkedIn. Uh, just look for my name, Malcolm Blow. Uh, I believe the website is linkedin.com slash in slash Malcolm Blow. Okay. Um, that's the easiest way. I do want to request that people send me a quick snippet of why they're adding me. If they do add me, uh, gotcha, yeah. I get random requests all the times and I just don't know how to react. I do want some sort of real connection. So probably that field, uh, give me a way to reply back to you and say, looking forward to it our finger out how we can best serve each other in the future. Gotcha. Yep, that makes sense. No random <laughs> not doing um, threat intel recon and you using right. the to do research. Yeah. That plus vendors and, and headhunters. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Since I I fixed up my LinkedIn profile, it's been nonstop. And so I really yeah. want that new field. So I'll always find a whole lot faster if someone sends me an invite with the snippet. Gotcha. Definitely makes sense. Uh, Malcolm, thank you for uh, stopping by the Black Cyber Podcast. Um, a wealth of knowledge you just gave. That is a lot to dissect. I think people are going to have to watch this podcast like seven times just to get all the good information on it, but uh, definitely good information. Um, so if you enjoyed today's video, you can find more on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube and type Black Cyber to check out our podcast and other content. Uh, Malcolm, thank you once again for being on the show.
Not a problem. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Black Cyber Podcast, hosted by George McPherson, securing our place in the industry. Be sure to subscribe to Black Cyber on YouTube and also subscribe to our podcast on all the major podcast networks like Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and many more.